Broadcasting from deep in the heart of North America, five influential podcasters from coast to coast come together to discuss a variety of topics from around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Power Hour! Welcome, everybody. This is Coast to Coast Power Hour. My name is Michael Glenmore, and I'm the host for this episode. And today we have two uh, other podcasters with me so far. We're expecting several more to, to log in as the hour goes on. But I'll go around and have everybody um, introduce themselves and talk about their podcast and what they have going on with their life at this moment. And then we'll get into our topic. So, Mike Peacock, why don't you go ahead and start first? Hey, thanks, Michael. Well, my name is Mike Peacock. I'm the host of Misery Point Radio. I'm based out of the Seattle area. And um, yeah, that's pretty much my show is about, you know, interviews with uh, musicians, artists, entertainers, all the way from, you know, underground acts to established acts, um, you know, filmmakers, actors, authors, musicians, all kinds of cool stuff. So I always say, uh, you know, epic interviews with epic artists um, for piles of awesomeness. That's pretty much how I describe the show. I've been doing it now for a few years and absolutely love anything behind the scenes and getting people's stories about what inspires them to keep making the creative stuff because I think it's the creativity in the universe that kind of helps bring us all together and helps kind of move things forward and sometimes helps people set aside their differences when they can bond over something creative and awesome. Yeah, uh, we are all part of the SJ Network, which stands for Stephen Joyner Network, and uh, he is a publicist who does quite a bit of work, and for all of us, he gets us a lot of our guests. So I imagine you get talking to, you know, the type of people you talk to, Mike, you probably deal a lot with, with Stephen. How's that been uh, going for you? Yeah, Steve is an awesome guy. Uh, he, he's, he, <laughs> that motherfucker, man, he's hard working. <laughs> he's always nose to the grindstone. And, uh, and, and he's a hell of a dude. And, you know, Steve is just fantastic at hooking people up with guests and also, you know, trying to find a right match, right? So he's not just throwing random people out and, and just trying to see where it lands. It's like, hey, let me pair somebody that's going to fit with your format, which I always appreciate. Um, I've dealt with uh, quite a few of Steve's friends and clients and have had a blast with all of them. So, uh, yeah, props to Steve Joyner for, for working the magic and, and hooking people up and getting the word out about all the awesome people that he works with. So if you're a podcaster and would like to get in touch with Steve, or if you're somebody who is in need of a publicist, you can find him online at s-j-network.com, s-j-network.com, uh, and that, that is the website. So go ahead and go there, and there's a place, there's a form that you can fill out to let Steve know that you're interested in securing himself, and uh, he'll get back with you with his pricing packages and so forth. And he'll okay. change life, just saying. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good thing. So uh, next we have Jim, the podcast Sherpa. Jim, what's up? 
Hey there, Michael. How's it going? Pretty good so far. How about you? I'm doing good. Hanging in there. It's a crisp, almost fall day up here on where I live. <laughs> on the East Coast. Well, go ahead and tell us about your podcast. Sure. Uh, this is called Too Many Podcasts. Uh, and it's originally started out to introduce people to podcasts who might be new. And I had a lot of podcasts podcast hosts on so people can kind of get to know the hosts and it's gradually grown and we've had a lot of artists and writers and directors and such and even people from all different walks of life come on the show just to shoot the breeze and uh, we've really expanded our our scope so uh that's basically it in a nutshell i'm going to ask you to to kind of bring your your camera down a little bit because we're getting your mouth cut off and it's kind of irritating there you go <laughs> and now we can see your beautiful face yeah <laughs> okay Sorry so about that. my name is michael glenmore again and uh, my, i have two podcasts one is in a city like yours uh, a true storytelling podcast where people come on and relate a story that's happened to them in their life something that's changed them in some significant way uh, either good or bad but I'm, what i'm looking for and what we have are people who can tell a, an engaging story about something in their life that uh, that's been major that happened to them. And the other podcast is called uh, Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour, which uh, is with Scott H. Silverman, who is a crisis counselor, uh, addiction and recovery coach. And we talk about the, the realm of addiction and recovery, kind of uh, not AA, but, you know, we deal a lot with AA because that's such a big thing in addiction, addiction and recovery. Okay, so now it's time to get into our show. Today, we're going to be discussing memorable m movie soundtracks. And I think Mike came up with this idea, so we're going to let him go first. And we're all going to hopefully each have a, a different movie that we can talk about. If we, if you want to, we could maybe talk a little bit about the podcast. I'm, I mean, about, I'm sorry, about the movie without giving the, the title away. And Jim and I can kind of see if we can figure it out, like which movie it is. Uh, okay, so, right on. All right, little, little, little play there. Well, hey, you know, so the majority of what I do in my personal life and, you know, with my podcast and whatnot is, is music related. I've been a musician all my life. And I, I think from a very early age, I really was involved in music. My, my mom played music. Uh, she was a musician. My dad had just epic record collection, including a ton of soundtracks, which was cool. Uh, you know, vinyl, reel-to-reel, -reel, you know, cassette tapes, uh, and even, you know, going back to, you know, like pre-VHS and Betamax, all, all kinds of cool audio and video stuff around the house, and, you know, we didn't go to movies all that often, but when we did, it was a huge treat, and every time we went to a movie, everybody was always talking about, oh, what happened in the movie, and this was cool, and that was cool, but I was always left with these lingering impressions of like musical tidbits that kind of hung out in my brain. And for me, I always looked at movies as um, the soundtracks anyways, that they were like a character in the movie because depending on who was doing the movie and whether or not there was a score involved, or even if it was just like a collection of music, I, I feel like if done properly, the music not only sets the mood for what's going on in the scene, but you can start to identify what's going to happen based off what the music is. So, you know, I, I guess there's a very famous composer who I won't name yet, but I'm sure it's probably at the top of everybody's mind, but, you know, responsible for some of the most memorable movie scores in history. And I remember this particular movie from the late seventies 
um, had so many awesome independent little uh, snippets of music that were identified by characters. And so um, how can I describe this without giving it away? Because it's so difficult. It's just such an obvious choice, I think, to start the ball rolling. Yeah, I've got a good guess already. Already, <laughs> yeah. So you know, let's just say that you're you're kicking back, and all of a sudden there's some tense action. There's some killer lasers, and then all of a sudden it all this this mist just kind of separates, and this imposing dark figure walks in to the spaceship corridor, and the music that is playing is so full of tension and so full of energy, and you just know that that is a bad MF who's just going to F people up. And that just sets the tone. And every time that character pops on the screen, yeah, <laughs> of that song. And so, uh, yeah, I, 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 you guys have already figured out, of course, who I'm talking about. And, uh, and of course, John Williams. The legendary John Williams. And, you know, I thought about this as, as I was kind of, you know, bouncing around these ideas in my head and I, I hesitated to even bring up John Williams because he seems like just such the obvious choice. And, you know, we could probably do entire podcasts about each of the movies that he's been responsible for, you know, star Wars, of course, Indiana Jones, Jaws, Superman, and they're all iconic though. And, and I just, I, every time I hear a John Williams soundtrack, I know it's him. I mean, there's clones, there's people that do it, but um, the very first soundtrack that I ever got, like that I bought with my own money was the Star Wars soundtrack. And I had it on vinyl, still have it on vinyl, um, the original pressing, which is great. Um, sadly, it's pretty butchered at this point because my, my young hands got a hold of it and it didn't get cared for very well. Um, but yeah, you know, it's really hard for me to, to hold a candle to, for anybody else to hold a candle to that soundtrack because it's just so... It's just perfect, you know, and even like the newer Star Wars films, though, they don't they don't hold the same like you don't identify them in the same way, at least for me, because I'm old and I grew up with the originals. Um, there's just something about them that it's like you can listen to just the music and let's just say you heard no dialogue, right? All you heard was the music and saw the action on the screen you could still feel what kind of a scene was going to happen without the dialogue. It's kind of like it's telling the story with the music and so for me i just i i always go back to that as kind of being the catalyst for my love for soundtracks and over the years um you know many others you know kind of uh came to pass and uh you know from there I, you know last of the mohicans uh i also felt like was just a super epic soundtrack um that has always kind of stuck with me so and and you know many others but you know if that if that's a, a good start for you guys to kind of jump from um i can stop babbling about that because i'll talk about star wars until i'm freaking blue in the face and my head <laughs> that would be interesting to see um yeah i was going to talk about jaws but uh not really need to now because we're talking about john williams already uh, another uh movie pr uh, director and producer that i really liked and liked his films uh, I mean, his uh, soundtracks, which were not really original soundtracks. He used a lot of classical music and other other things, but is uh, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. With things like 2001 A Space Odyssey and uh, The Shining, which was a really good soundtrack, I thought. I had that on vinyl for a long time and got lost somewhere. But uh, he really, for me, the way he used existing music 
was perfect. He could hear something or he would be making his movie and have a scene and he knew in his head what he wanted to put with it. He knew, you know, rather than having a movie finished and giving it to somebody to score and then the brilliance happens then, he was kind of doing it all at one time. So, you know, just really, really interesting. Um, what about you, Jim? Um, it's funny, when I think about soundtracks, I, I know there are some amazing composers and everything like that. There's one album that I'm thinking of that was really just a compilation of a lot of 60s music. Do you, what, are we playing Guess the Title or? Uh... <laughs> we can go ahead and get, you can go ahead and okay. say what it is. All right, a movie, I believe it was made in the 80s, a group of, I believe they were college friends getting together. One of them, one of them had passed, and they kind of reconnect in that weekend that they get together. I know that. It's, uh, um, God, the dead guy was played by Kevin Costner. Yes, um, that's I, right. I, I'm trying to think of the name, though. It's, it's, it's skipping me. Do you, do you know what it is, Mike? Not with the one I was thinking it was going to be. <laughs> Okay, you're going to have to give us the title because I cannot think of it. The Big Chill. The Big Chill, that's right. Okay. Yeah, that's from beginning to end. It's Motown, and it's just incredible choices that they made for that movie. And it really fit to, you know, it, it didn't have anything directly to do with the story. I thought the story itself was okay. You had a great cast, but just, like, incredible music from beginning to end, though. You just, like, loved hearing, like, if it was going to be a Four Top song or a Diana Ross song or whatever it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a fantastic soundtrack. I, I got to give you that. That's that, that is, and you know, I need to go watch that movie again because um, that's kind of one of those movies that every time I see it, it kind of pops on like TNT late at night, one in the morning and you can't <laughs> getting the, the edited version with all the commercials in there, but it's still freaking cool. Uh, and it does, it just has a soundtrack, but you're right though. I mean, it's a collection of awesome songs that don't necessarily move the story but you find yourself like, oh, I like that song. Oh, I like that song. That's a cool song. You know? So yeah, that's a really cool collection of awesome stuff on that one. I need to send out a shout out to Christopher S. Rudder. I'm mean, a Christopher Rudder because uh, I've kind of stolen his idea of doing the mystery movie or the mystery TV series. That's what he does on his podcast. So I want to make sure that uh, when he listens to this and he doesn't say, that's what I do. You stole my idea. But uh, <laughs> so we just got a little play with that. So hopefully he's going to be on the, on the show tonight and we can get his, uh, his movies. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, Mike, do you have any other movies uh, other than John Williams that you want to bring up? I do. And so uh, actually there was another, uh, another, I guess, uh, film that I felt was very iconic that used collections of, of, uh, of just epic soundtracks, you know, from like the sixties and stuff. And I was thinking Forrest Gump, um, which <laughs> that soundtrack I mean, I, I love that movie, and that's not even normally the kind of movie I go for, but I friggin' love Forrest Gump, and that soundtrack is amazing, and just so many, so many awesome songs, all different kinds of songs, but I felt like what, what um, was done really well with that movie was that the songs really fit what was going on at the time, like they really made an effort to say, you know, hey, in the time when they were talking about, for instance, the civil rights movement, they used music that was appropriate for that time frame. And, you know, and then when they were talking about, you know, just things that were happening in general, they had like really upbeat rock and roll kind of stuff going on. But it was not a really cool mix of, uh, of songs. And then I also thought what was really cool coming out of that movie was that down the road, um, uh, Gary Sinise went on to form the Lieutenant Dan Band, which was awesome and uh, mm -hmm. donates 
pretty much all the profits he makes from playing shows and recording of that project to, you know, veterans and causes for veterans and, and, you know, different kind of charities like, you know, Snowball Express and things like that. So I just always thought that that soundtrack was awesome. I think Gary Sinise is one of the most amazing human beings on the planet. Um, and just that, that was a, a really great soundtrack. And that also reminded me of, you know, there's one other director, I think, that really uses existing music as a character um and, and that's martin scorsese uh you know goodfellas casino i mean just just you know all of his stuff really kind of it's it's again it's the music as a character he's using it for scene transitions you kind of know what the energy of the scene is going to be like based off the music that's playing and uh, scorsese i think is just a, a fantastic director i don't like all of his movies you know some of them are hit some of them are miss you know he's got definitely a very stylized kind of like tarantino has a very stylized thing um but i think scorsese kind of really goes after kind of a, i'm trying to be kind of classy almost in the way that i present this it's very kind of noir style which i've always kind of appreciated about his stuff well you mentioned uh, steven spielberg two of his movies already uh close encounter of the third kind is that a john williams soundtrack that's a great question. I don't know what that one is. Um, there's this magical thing called the interwebs. I'm sure we could look it up, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna fail the test on that one. That I don't know if that's a uh, a Williams soundtrack. Mostly because honestly, even though I've seen that movie a couple of times, I don't know why that one just never resonated with me to the point where I was gonna really watch it and watch it and watch it and, and then learn it and love it. Um, but it is it's got a very definitely a cool score. It's a pretty light score. I mean, it's pretty, it doesn't have really the typical John Williams, you know, super high cascading crescendo-y kind of stuff. It's pretty middle of the road all the way through, if I remember it. Very low-key kind of atmospheric music. Yeah, I was just thinking of the spaceship when it was, they were talking back and forth with the spaceship and did the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, that real easy uh, play of chords there that, that seemed to work so well. I just looked it up. You are right. It is John Williams. Okay. That. Boom. You win. <laughs> just got a just got a, a text from uh, Christopher, and then he'll be here in ten minutes. So we'll have to kind of kill time until he gets here. Uh, Jim, what, what about you? Do you have another movie soundtrack person? That yeah. You really love? Um, I just wanted to piggyback on something that Mike Peacock said uh, when you're talking about Scorsese. I'm thinking about that one scene in Goodfellas. Well, I know this is kind of a spoiler if you haven't seen the movie, so sorry, you know, it's 20 years old or whatever. Uh, when Joe Pesci gets killed and you hear the code apart from Layla and it's just, it just fits that scene. It's so stark and empty and you, you see the blood pouring and you hear the, the piano and the wailing guitar and it just works. It's, it's really weird combination of violence and rock and roll really cool because that particular scene it's, it's funny you mentioned that because that's actually is the scene that plays out in my head every time i think of that movie in the soundtrack and they play this song in its entirety uh, of the beginning of that song you know and it's kind of like they're going through and they're talking or you know showing like all the people that are basically getting whacked you know mm -hmm. um because of uh, you know jimmy's getting paranoid you know he's trying to separate himself and all this kind of stuff it's it's perfect i mean because you take that song and you wouldn't think that that song belongs with anything to do with a right. movie like that, right so it's just so out of context but when you see it together it's got this kind of glorious harmonious almost ballet like presentation it's so smooth the way that they 
take this song and then just superimpose these massive images of just violent brutality and you know <laughs> Uh, you know, hanging in the freaking meat freezers or, you know, bolts to the back of the head in the car, or, you know, any number that, you know, in the dumpster and just, it's just pretty piano music and <laughs> dead people, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> definitely uh, I, I think probably one of my favorite examples of uh, a crazy juxtaposition of beautiful music and, and just, just horrendous imagery. Well, somebody who collaborated quite a bit with uh, Tim Burton, you know, I really like is Danny Elfman. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Danny Elfman. Yeah, he, uh, you know, and he did the soundtrack or the theme song for The Simpsons, which of course is iconic now and it's been around forever. And there's, you know, 5,000 episodes of The Simpsons. So you really hear it every day. But uh, yeah, he's, he's something. And I like him when he was with Oingo Boingo, Oingo Boingo and uh, the movie The Forbidden Zone, which was just a crazy kind of acid trip movie uh, that he uh, wrote with uh, the rest of his band members. But uh, yeah, uh, Danny Elfman. There's some trivia for you with uh, Oingo Boingo, not a name you hear every day. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm a child of the 80s. I mean, I was born in the mid-70s, but the, the 80s were my, were my era of, uh, I guess we'll call it uh, audio and video absorption, where everything that I saw and everything I heard is forever packed into my head. And I'm constantly being called a child of the 80s because I refuse to let that stuff go. And I even, you know, there's a, here in Seattle, there's a KISW and they have a dude, it's the eighties, you know, on the radio. Um, and it's just all kinds of glorious hair metal and, uh, you know, butt rock and all kinds of cool stuff. And I'm like, I like like death metal and thrash metal and really evil stuff, but my guilty pleasure is listening to all this stuff from the eighties and watching all the movies from the eighties, like weird science and, you know, stuff like that. So I just, you know, Danny Elfman, I think is, um, I think he's, I don't want to say underrated because he's clearly appreciated in the industry, but it's something about like John Williams always being the go-to and then, and then there's Danny Elfman. And I kind of, at this stage, I almost kind of think it should be switched because, you know, John Williams is kind of, he's kind of a, you, you don't hear a lot of stuff, uh, you know, from him. Uh, I mean, is he still around? I don't even know. Is he still alive? Still I'm playing? not sure. I was wondering that earlier. But yeah. I, but I agree with you that Danny Elfman is kind of the the new vanguard in in uh, movie soundtracks. Yeah, he's so prolific, and I I think that he's also he does a lot of stuff, not just movies, but you know TV stuff and commercials and even uh yeah music videos. So yeah, he's uh he's awesome. You know, composers I think people that write scores I don't think get the appreciation that say your contemporary musician you know pop star would get. You know, and it's it's really funny because. A lot of pop stars, for instance, and even write their own music, right? It's it's a bunch of people putting all this stuff together. Somebody goes and performs it, and then that person is revered. Where people that write, you know, orchestral scores or movie scores or video game scores, you know, and these you get one guy writing, you know, music for forty instruments, you know, uh, it's an immense level of talent and knowing how to literally build a vibe, build a feeling, build a scene and build the tension. Um, I think is it just a talent that's just way, way overlooked, I think, in the music industry. Yeah, I don't have a musical bone in my body and it's always amazed me, like what you just brought up with an you know, orchestrated piece that you have all those parts that somebody came up with and put them all together and then, you know, they come out and they just sound fantastic. Uh, you know, John Williams was, was excellent in that. I think he did that a lot more than a lot of the other uh, soundtrack people. Um, 
musicians. He, like you said before, with Star, Star uh, Wars, he kind of did characterizations with his soundtrack. So he had a, a piece of work that was just uh, specifically for a character and that character embodied that work. And it, just however he did that is amazing because uh, he, he added so much to the movie you know, it, without without the soundtrack, I, you know, Star Wars Star Wars would still be a good movie, but with the soundtrack that John Williams wrote, it's just that much better. You know, Stolly and I were talking about that actually when when I was a guest on his show a few months ago. Um, there's some stuff that you can see kind of floating around on the internet, but it's um, I haven't seen it in a while. But there are people out there that basically take the soundtracks out of the movies and play the movie scenes the dialogue without the music attached to them from famous things so listen to star wars listen to some epic scenes and not have the music right and then it blows your mind when you see something that you've known you, i've seen it a million times i know this in like the back of my hand and the music's not there and you're like i don't know what's happening my brain can't process how this has completely changed the entire meaning of this for me and it's really awkward and actually uncomfortable to watch these scenes without that iconic music in the background. Um, it just, it really messes with your head. It's uh, something that I, I wouldn't wish on anybody, <laughs> but you should see it just to see it, to experience, you know, um, how, how that effect, even if you're not somebody who thinks that that music affects you, when you see something without it and you want it to be there, it has an effect on you. Well, Jim, what you got going? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, John Williams, still alive, by the way. <laughs> I, I looked that up. He's, uh, he's 68, actually. Sorry, John. <laughs> and uh, when you still talk about him, you know, when, about creating things for characters, he really kind of created the music for the shark itself and Jaws because you hear somebody go, dun, 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 dun. You, you know what that means. And when you saw that in the movie, it wasn't like you were actually seeing the shark eat somebody, but just from what you did see and you hear that music, it just kind of put that fear in you and made everybody scared to go to the beach for that summer. Yeah, that was very memorable. Uh, <laughs> a couple of M's in that. But anyway, yeah, that was really uh, interesting the way he did that. And like you said, it's definitely the shark's music. Uh, kind of yeah. one of the few films that had a, a, a beast having a soundtrack for just the beast. <laughs> yeah. I have a question, though, I want, that I want to ask you guys. Uh, Michael, I know I think we're a little bit older than Mike, but... You think of the movie uh, Saturday Night Fever, where it was all disco. If that was a horrible soundtrack, do you think disco would have been big? Or do you think that the whole image that was presented in that movie would have made people like, eh, well, <laughs> let's, let's do this anyway? That came around close to the end of disco, when disco was kind of going out. Uh, I yeah, think it was like 77, uh, 77. Yeah. Yeah. So, God, uh, what did so, I walk into? Yeah. So that was, that was really close <laughs> to the time of, uh, uh, new 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 wave within the 80s it took over but uh but yeah so when saturday night live came out disco was kind of on its way out we just got uh christopher stolly he's here now and christopher why don't you go ahead and say hi and tell us about your podcast hey guys sorry i'm late i was uh, actually finishing up the weekly show for breaking the fourth wall and we ran a little over that's why i'm behind i'm tardy you know, I'll take my demerits from uh, Dean uh, Michael Moore later. Uh, <laughs> my show, Realm of the Mist Entertainment, Breaking the Fourth Wall. I do interviews. I do comedy. I do a little bit of everything, and that's why I don't get more than two hours a week of sleep. So here I am. 
<laughs> well, we're, today, uh, Chris, we're talking about memorable movie soundtracks, and we've already discussed Star Wars and John Williams, uh, uh, Jaws, and and um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and we talked about um, Martin Scorsese's film, and um, excuse me, and um, Stanley Kubrick's stuff, and Oingo Boingo with uh, Danny Elfman. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Chris Ristali of Breaking the Fourth Wall. If you enjoy our show, you can find it on YouTube. Just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment or just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. And also, you can find us on all the social medias. Just look for Realm of the Mist Entertainment. And I will catch you on the other side. So, so, given, so we're talking about symphonic uh, soundtracks. We're not necessarily talking about, like, for sake of argument off the top of my head, like Wayne's World soundtrack. With all no, no, we're talking about that, too, because, that's, I mean, Stanley Kubrick used a lot of existing music in his films. Okay. So, and we talked about, uh, I think uh, Jim brought up, um, what was it, Jim? The Big Chill. The Big Chill, yeah. So we talked about that some. So what, what is some movies or soundtracks that really hit home with you, Chris? Heavy Metal. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember and, seeing that at the Midnight Theater. Yeah. And that soundtrack was absolutely that was one of those soundtracks you could put on in a car and just go on a long drive and just enjoy. Kind of yeah. pissed, I didn't say that myself. So uh, damn it. <laughs> That's it. I come in and I steal all the good shit and then I leave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like an illegal immigrant. I take it all and I just run back home. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Again, I just got done doing the weekly show. Forgive me. The comedy's still in. <laughs> You're the one that has to edit this, so, you know. Yeah, I guess that one's got to be cut out. No, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, ever since the first time I saw that movie on VHS, I, I was in love with the soundtrack. I mean, I was, of course, I was a hard rock, heavy metal guy to begin with, but, I mean, the songs, I mean, you got Sammy Hagar on there, and, and, and I mean, screaming heavy metal, and like every song had metal references in it. I mean, it's perfect uh, comp compilation and and uh, connection uh, companion to the move to the film itself. I don't think the film would be half of what it was without that soundtrack. I think yeah. it would just be. I think it would just be crappy animation without the soundtrack. Not that I'm saying. Not that I'm saying the movie was bad. I'm just saying I don't think it would have half the impact that it has without the soundtrack well you know the name in and of itself obviously you know you've got something called heavy metal how could you have a movie like that and not have that be the running in the background right you know and then you know think about what that did for that franchise too i mean you know the artwork was cool but you're right it wasn't like set your world on fire art but it right. it, it, cult, right? it became very popular and very stylized and then you saw movies and different generations of graphic novels and all kinds of stuff in print media but probably you're right had that soundtrack not been as epic as it was the imagery itself probably wouldn't have been enough to carry that through at least to get enough fans initially to keep that franchise going like that i will have to argue one point though like um, you were saying like yeah i was right about the animation being being you know kind of kind of not like wow wow moment except without the soundtrack i would agree for all of it except for the the uh the last segment the one with the uh, blonde haired chick with the dragon that was some pretty good animation with or without the soundtrack but the well, rest of the film yeah <laughs> it, had, it had uh it had different styles if i it's been a while since i've seen it but i remember that it didn't have like a 
the full continuity in terms of art style. It seemed like he threw out a few different things here and there. Um, it's really funny though, because I really liked the soundtrack for that. And honestly though, I was never a huge fan in and of itself just for the movie. It was kind of the whole experience of it with the music that I think that, that uh, kind of, and I, I, I was a late comer to that, that franchise. Like I didn't, I hadn't heard about it initially it had been around for a long time. Like, got introduced to it, so. Well, we've got, we've got Christopher Rudder now. He's with us. So Christopher, why don't you go ahead and uh, talk about your podcast so the, our listeners know what's up with you. It's a party now. Um, so uh, I'm the host of What's Your and Binge. We talk to everybody about what they're currently binge watching. We do our show a little bit with a twist. We have a celebrity guest come on. And I don't want to know what the name of the show is before you start talking about it. I ask everybody who, what, when, where, why. And then I try to guess at what the show is that you're talking about. And sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong. No matter what, it didn't matter. We just try to sit around and have a conversation like we're drinking a beer at the bar. Yeah, we played that game at the beginning. I gave you credit. I'm sorry I stole your idea, but I just couldn't resist. With the, We're talking about um, memorable movie soundtracks. And, um, We've talked quite a bit about, you know, most of the people, but what, what is your most memorable movie soundtrack? Hmm. Don't say so heavy metal is taken. I would have to say Top Gun actually has one of the most iconic soundtracks ever. There's uh, about six or seven songs that if you hear the first five seconds of, you know what it is and you know what it's from. I'm just going to mention things that we had, something we haven't talked about yet is uh, musical soundtracks in movies. Things like Grease, um, Rocky Horror Picture Show, West Side Story, um, things like that. Uh, I don't know if they've all started in uh, on Broadway or you know as as stage productions, then gone to the movies, which I think all Grease, Rocky Horror, and West Side Story were, but. Um, you know, movie musicals are pretty cool too, and that kind of reminds me of uh, heavy metal as well. You know what, though, it's kind of, it's kind of an ass backwards thing for me because I think some of the greatest soundtracks that have ever been done is in Disney movies. You know, with the with the songs that they do, like Under the Sea and uh, Whole New World and all that, and they're great and they're awesome. And then you buy the soundtrack, the official soundtrack, and it's not the artists that played the characters or whatever and did the voices in the songs. They always get like Beyonce to sing it, and it's terrible it's nothing like the original they pop it up and everything it's it's horrible like why does stuff like that annoys the hell out of me like the remixed uh, et album that came out in like the 80s where you know where they tried to make it all techno it was horrible like why do they do stuff like that yeah yet another St spielberg film was uh john williams uh john williams, scored, john williams yeah. again <laughs> I'd, I'd have to go on record besides like Top Gun being uh, one of those soundtracks that could be, you know, it, instantly you know what it is and what it's from. Most of it's a Kenny Loggins joint. But uh, the other one besides that, I don't know if anyone's mentioned it yet, but uh, Forrest Gump is probably um, one of the most iconic soundtracks ever because it encompasses such a huge time all the way back from early Elvis all the way up through, you know, time and doing the Rolling Stones and, and uh, there's Beatles in it. And then going into the eighties and you have uh, some more contemporary artists. Like, that's a, 
that's probably one of the most well-rounded soundtracks ever, maybe. Um, oh, I can make that same Cooper. argument. What's that? I can make that same argument for the Beavis and Butthead experience. True. You know, Beavis, they have a Beavis and Butthead do America, yeah. <laughs> they have a great, great soundtrack, but as far as a movie that everybody has watched, True. it's very hard to talk to a room full of people and find somebody who hasn't seen it because it's uh you know it's been replayed on on every network and every platform possible and all the songs you know they were all uh not all of them were number one hits but they were all like top 10 hits on the charts every single song on that album so that's probably one of the better ones well what about the ones that are in themselves satire like uh, the first one i'm thinking about like they were actually relatively good uh uh songs but of course they were tongue in cheek and all that like i'm thinking like south park's bigger batter uncut tenacious d pick a destiny yeah tenacious d pick a destiny where the soundtracks are actually really really well done the songs are excellent but they are satire they're very tongue-in-cheek blue collar comedy would they classify under it because of the fact of of the fact that it is original art uh music work or and technically memorable how many of us don't know kyle's mom is a big fat bitch but I mean, you know, at the same time, I the fact, the fact this is so blue. <laughs> I, I think soundtrack is still soundtrack. If it's it's the the music that you know represents the scene or the mood of everything going through the movie, and you know, a soundtrack is soundtrack. Really, I mean, you would never rate any of the Clint Eastwood movies with Marcy Own as like great soundtracks because it's all musical composition, but it's still super recognizable. So, uh, you know, everybody knows uh, Inzio uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I like um, I like all kinds of, you know, kinds of soundtracks, you know, whether or not it's orchestral stuff or whether or not it's, you know, just a, a, an anthology of licensed music. You know, the Forrest Gump definitely, I, I would say, ranks up there as one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. Mm-hmm. We covered that before you joined, for sure. Um, Dazed and Confused, kind of the same thing, right? It had this really epic yeah. sound. Yeah, great. It was, it was so perfect for the time of what that movie was going for. And, uh, you know, even just that, that opening sequence, you know, just like bing, 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 with, you know, sweet emotion yeah. there, and they're kind of introducing all the characters. And then it's like the perfect timing by the time the song is done, boom, you've now set the stage for all the characters. And, are gonna- and it, it's great music for everybody who's watching it because you're looking at really a snapshot of like high school life. And for a lot of us, l- hearing those songs are very attached to whenever you first got introduced to classic rock whatever age group you're in or or you know original heavy metal there's some of those songs in there uh that's that's a great movie that really because we're all able to define like our musical taste while we're very young like 14 is like the perfect age yeah and uh that that movie represents like that that time period also think about blow and american hustle those two soundtracks, like Blow, the scene with, ooh, Black Betty, bam, blam, blam, and Tommy and Johnny Depp is walking through the airport. It's like set to his steps, the rhythm of it. And same thing with American Hustle, whenever you have um, uh, quite a few of the scenes where they interject music instead of dialogue. And uh, 
those are those are really well done. Those are the kind of soundtracks that appeal to me whenever it matches to the scene and the time period of the movie, or if they jump out of the time period, that it's uh, a replacement of dialogue like they did in American Hustle and a couple times in, in Blow, too. I, I, I get a kick at now. I'm following with you, like you're saying, the high school feel and everything. Uh, but yeah. uh, for me, it, like when, my, when I think of soundtracks that I, that I consistently will sit down and listen to, a lot of them that I listen to are from the 90s era, and they, they were acts put together with it you know three that come to my mind or you know like i made the joke of it when i first came in i made the joke of wayne's world but that had a phenomenal soundtrack but yeah. two more the two more that come to mind that are literally iconic uh soundtracks would be queen of the damned and uh and uh the crow oh very very big yeah and what about seven is would that fall in the same category you're talking about because that was a it was late nineties, but they represented a lot of like early and mid nineties music with nine inch nails and whatnot. I don't remember the soundtrack to seven. Okay. Well, they, yeah, they played a lot of Trent Reznor and, and Nine Inch Nails, but what you're talking about with the crow especially, man, like they had two or three songs that were Oh yeah, they had nine inch they had nine inch nails and of course the, the, the main the main theme song uh from, from the soundtrack, which was like the main theme song of the movie was from the cure. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking, you got My Life yeah. with a kill, uh, Thrill Kill Cult. You got uh, Jesus and the Mary Chain, uh, Daisy Chain. You got, uh, God, so many different acts. I mean, Filter. I mean, it, it's quintessential 90s rock and industrial yeah. metal. <laughs> yeah, industrial metal for sure. Yeah, that that's cool. That's a good one. What about the satire? This is Final Tap. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you ripped that right out of my mouth. Dude, that's so awesome. You know, what's great about that soundtrack is that uh, those guys played that music, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they were the real musicians who wrote and played it, yeah. Absolutely. And so you, 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 when you think about the fact that, you know, uh, Lenny from Lenny and Sleeky, Laverne and Shirley <laughs> is this iconic, right. now, you know, it, it, it just, it's so awesome when you see, you know, these people are accomplished musicians in their own right christopher guest of course super awesome harry yeah, people with serious credits able yeah, to do this yeah. absolutely you know and spinal tap i think is uh not only is the movie fantastic but it's kind of like yeah songs were written in a humorous you know humorous way that shows this progression from these super old preppy english style proper <laughs> big bottoms big bottoms talk about uh, mug flash talking about girls talking yeah. about that kind of movie that mirrors uh reality but they're spoofing it yeah. um like tenacious d pick of destiny do yeah. any of you remember whenever it originally started on hbo and if you do how much of a poor copy is the movie of the original tv series I, I think that's uh, because to me, it's a horrible ripoff watching Tenacious D, the TV series in, in the early 2000s. I think it's all a ripoff compared to their actual just albums themselves. I mean, you know, the songs have always been awesome, whether it's TV or movie. But, you know, you just you can you can just kick back on a radio and listen to Tenacious D and get the joke. You don't need. Visual. Yeah, but with the TV show, you were able to see the original skit on how they came up with the greatest song there ever was, or any of the other ones, all of them revolve around these comedy skits, and you're able to see Jack Black back before he was aware of 
cameras and his spot and and all that other shit. And then whenever you, it's it's just too much of a. It's not a sellout because they're introducing it to a new crowd. It's it's smart, but at the same time, if you watch the original part of it, the movie itself doesn't hold up to the TV series in my mind. Yeah, but I I got to defend the movie for one reason. If it wasn't for the movie, we would not be able to sit down and enjoy the uh, the song Kickapoo and having fucking Meatloaf playing the Christian father. Okay, <laughs> that's great camera. That's that's for sure. That's that's great filming, uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think speaking of Jack Black, I mean, you know, School of Rock was a fun little movie that he did. It had a great soundtrack, didn't it? Yeah. It did. But the cool thing about it, as we were talking about, was, you know, the music was the, the, the subject of the movie, right? He's teaching these kids his music, but he's yeah. teaching music. So it's not just that it's there for the the movie viewer to enjoy in the background it is a character the movie music mm -hmm. part of the movie in that sense which is really cool and it kind of reminds me of like you know old tarantino flicks like reservoir dogs for instance yeah where they're taking like the soundtrack you're listening to the soundtrack through the radio of the mm -hmm. character right. to that song as something's happening and then yeah. you know fiction they're turning on you know, uh, inside, uh, you know, Mia's house, right? She flips mm -hmm. on the reel to reel. You're listening to the music as they're listening to the music. It, it's uh, almost uh, like, um, uh, kind of pardon this, it's a pun, but it's almost like that they're allowing the music to break the fourth wall to become that interaction with the, the viewer because it's a living part of the dynamic. It, it's, it's really interesting whenever people are able to pull that off and yeah. make a good storytelling. That's for sure. Well, yeah, let me let me pose a question. For instance, Stolly, you know, you're talking about Wayne's World and, you know, a movie breaking the fourth wall, right? They're playing, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody in the Gremlin or the Pacer as they're driving down the road, right? That iconic scene where they've written that entire scene around them performing that song in the car. That's, yeah. that's perfect movie making right there. It's just, it's epic. Oh, absolutely. And all the dream sequence in it, like a uh, foxy lady for, for uh, Garth dancing up to the, to the woman and uh, Dreamweaver every time uh, Wayne was looking at Tita Carrera up on stage while she's singing fucking uh, she Dreamweaver. She goes into slow motion. <laughs> yeah. And shit. yeah, man. It's fucking great. Yeah. But how about, how about when a soundtrack surpasses the movie? Like the one thing that comes to my mind right off the bat when I think of a great soundtrack but a shit movie was like Lost Highway. So that's David Lynch, right? David Lynch is yeah. fantastic, yeah. So I Crossroads, have, I think, falls into that category as well. I have a love-hate relationship with David Lynch. I want to love his movies because I always like his concepts. I just don't. But, yeah, you're right. That soundtrack was great. It was eerie. It was weird. Oh, it was so atmospheric. It's a shame that it was wasted on a movie like Lost Highway, which I know some people dug, but it, it just it, it wasn't good. That was Romstein a lot, wasn't it? In, in Lost Highway, Rom there, was, there was Manson, there was Nine Inch Nails, there was Rom. It was a lot of industrial band. Yeah. Yeah. It just didn't seem to fit. It just it's it's not like we were talking about, you know, with with Goodfellas, where you know you have the the weird thing about like this beautiful piano music and this violent imagery. With mm -hmm. Lost Highway, you just had weird avant-garde film stuff and weird lighting and weird backgrounds and then music that just didn't fit. 
I had a hard time. It was uh, basing by the title and the subject matter. It was almost like, you know, like Lost Highway. That evokes a country song. And then you get blasted by Nine Inch Nails. Uh, during one of the, you know, it, it, it kind of really throws you off. And, and you're right. It's, it's music that doesn't belong with the film. But it was great music for That's sure. Yeah, it was a good sound. You're right. You know, if you just bought the soundtrack to listen to in your car, you'd be like, this is badass. Yeah. You hit you hit the nail right on the head though about good music that's in a ba- in a film that it doesn't belong. I'm not calling this film bad because I know I'll get shot by every chick on the planet. But uh <laughs> to me the music does not fit because it's all 80s in a story that's in the 1950s. The soundtrack's phenomenal, but it just doesn't it doesn't belong on the film itself. Dirty Dancing. Well, Dirty Dancing because they were able to to bring in the music that they were able to dance to, making it a period piece that's frozen in time. It does make sense. It does translate to what they're doing on screen. But uh, the music, I think, is far better than the movie. But that's just because I'm not into chick flicks. So you know, I mean, I know it's an all time great, but at the same time, the music is is it is really good, and I think it's far better than the movie was. I think the movie is seriously overrated anyway. I, I agree, but the film was supposed to take place in the 1950s. I think they should have used 50s music in it, not modern acts of the time that, that, were, that were, you know, popular yeah. for the 80s when the film came out. Because I, to me, not that I'm a big chick flip, flick fan to begin with, but to me, that was one of the major things that took me out of the film. Because every time I'm watching them do the greaser daddy-o thing and, you know, the good girl in the in the poodle skirt and everything else, and then all of a sudden the song comes on and it's like fucking Madonna. It, it completely took me out of the suspension of disbelief, you know what I mean? And I think that was a little bit of the director's pretentiousness of showing how frozen in time this place was because mm. it had been the same for, you know, generations you look at you know baby's dad he played there as a kid with his parents and whatnot you know nobody puts baby in a corner well i mean you know they didn't really travel through time (laughs) either you know so i think that was a little bit of the directorial interpretation of that but i mean the, the music is definitely far better than the movie yeah playing on the scene the 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 theme of movies with soundtracks that don't really go is sophie coppola's uh Oh gosh, uh, Marie Antoinette, where she, you know, it's it's a period piece, but all the music is rock, modern rock and roll. And when I watched that, it just kind of it took away from the film. I, it distracted which me. Which show again? Uh, Marie Antoinette. Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's a while back, but I think it was yeah. Sophie's like second film or whatever. But uh, yeah, and she used modern music, and it just didn't fit for me. You know what? Okay. The first thing that comes to mind when you mentioned that was the. Uh, the modernization of Romeo and Juliet with fucking uh, Baz Luhrmann, Leo, Camp, uh, yeah, Leonardo Camp, Caprio, yeah. Yeah. where where they try to modern gangsterize the uh, the 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 Romeo and Juliet yeah. story, and oh god. Well, so, I actually like that one for some reason. That, that you know that kind of hit a mark for me, but uh, because because it was they were they were trying to modernize it. That was part of it, but with uh, Marie Antoinette, she was keeping everything period, and and with the music which was modern and the romeo and juliet the the period is modern and the music is modern but the dialogue is still old century english right right (laughs) it's weird it's weird whenever directors or the writers of something like that uh put things in those direction uh, those directions you know you're using 
Shakespearean language, but you're using a, you know, semi-modern setting and, and modern music, and you're trying to blend all of those things. It's, it's a, a movie has to be like done in a really particular, super good way to be able to pull something like that off. Like it, it can come across as being super sloppy if you try to blend those time periods and settings together and it, it can really come off being really poor or amateurish I guess. But there is there is times that it works. Um and, and one that comes to mind and, and again I may be I may be uh you know a fanboy of it. I know Mike's gonna laugh when I say it, but I'm thinking like young guns too. Bon Jovi did the whole fucking soundtrack, and I mean, it was rock and roll with a country. That was at the time period when it was right to have Bon Jovi do a movie, for yeah, sure. But it was, it, but you could time. listen to it on the movie, and it did not detract from the film. At no, all. no, it fit. Yeah, it I'm did. Give you that one, Stolly. What's that? I'm give you that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think Blaze of Glory would fit on Tombstone. But it worked for yeah. Young Guns too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was the right movie with the right kind of you know the the way they shot it and the the actors they had involved in it, and then it you know it was a perfect vehicle for Bon Jovi to be in a movie without actually being on screen. Yeah, and, you know, with Amelia Estevez and everybody else, you know, it, it was it was all a, a good concept for sure. Hollywood sold that one well. Look, I've only seen two films with Bon Jovi actually acting in it. U571, and he was actually pretty good in U571. It was a pretty sad thing that he got hit in the face and killed with a, uh, a Nazi shield off the, the, the conning tower of the, of the boat. You know, and then uh, Vampires Los Muertos, which I, I, I threw up on my mouth a little just talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think maybe the residue of uh, uh, Vampires uh, kind of affected me on the other movie because I was like, yeah, this is dumpster juice, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Jim, do you want to jump in here? You've been kind of quiet. I'm, I'm enjoying this back and forth right now. It's, it's good. I'm good. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jim. We you can tell us to shut the hell up anytime. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll mute myself, man. I'm sorry, bro. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so, uh, well, I wanted to jump back in then with uh, you know another kind of a, a score, if you will. Um, speaking of you know kind of the, the gangster movies and whatnot, um, the the main theme from The Godfather, um, I always thought. Okay was a fantastic you know yeah of course you haven't lived until you hear slash do it on his guitar yeah right but it's cool because they took that theme throughout that movie but did it 20 different ways right different different speeds different you know they changed the rhythm yeah exactly but it was always um it's like it's haunting right it, and, and it's it sticks with you and it's just kind of one of those movies i always thought like never really got a recognition for the soundtrack because in and of itself it wasn't really that memorable but that main theme i think um still if people hear it they recognize the song for sure they may not know where it came from but the acting over overcame it yeah that's, and, that's a couple of them right not only does it you know people maybe not recognize it uh, you know, by name, but you know, there's bands that have like covered it that have done like yeah. here's metal version of this. I've seen 
you know, uh, hip hop artists incorporated into their songs and, you know, uh, top mm-hmm. 40 pop stuff, international stuff, you know, uh, I, I just think that that particular piece of music has gone through so many different iterations over the years. And it's not even a long piece of music. It's only a minute. I mean, and then it gets yeah. on and stuff like that. But I just, that's, that's always uh, one of those ones that always stuck with me that I thought was just a really cool, you know, over black boom, you know, mm-hmm. thing all up, you hear it. You're like, Oh yeah, it's coming. Yeah. There's some holiday soundtrack, uh, holiday film soundtracks that that I think would stand the test of time too. It's like one of those things that like Home Alone. Of, well, not just Home Alone. I was actually thinking older. I was uh, one of the first ones that came to my mind was literally uh, White Christmas, Bing Crosby and yeah. Danny Kaye, and you got you know the uh, the the sisters, uh, uh, Clooney, uh, Clooney's mom, Rosemary, I think it was or whatever. I mean, there's some great songs in there. Some of them are not even Christmassy, like you know. Uh, they, they don't call, you call a dance they call a choreography or, or you know whatever there's some great great tunes in there it's older but it's absolutely fitting and of course you've got you know white christmas with bing cross yeah. singing which is as iconic as it can be you know and it's still uh, listed in the top 10 of most played and uh i it's most played and most requested songs of all time i think is the category that it's still in the top 10 of oh yeah and then another one another one that i was thinking where which would be more modernized if anybody remembers was bill murray's movie scrooged that had a great soundtrack that <laughs> uh, from beginning to end it, it covered a lot of different areas and eras uh, yeah. yeah that was a good good soundtrack of course the most iconic of the songs that came out of that was al green and uh annie annie lennox uh put a yeah. little in your heart yeah. <laughs> so uh, talking about the, the uh, Godfather theme that was sampled so many different ways, it, it's a difference of like 13 or 14 years, kind of a common theme. But uh, Scarface also actually has um, a weird score that goes through it. There's a couple of, of uh, um, musical samples that go in there, but for the most part, they use kind of that eerie and kind of thing going through there's a f- quite a few scenes where they didn't actually have produced music where it was just most mostly an orchestrated score i guess is the right way to put it where if you if you do a if you uh someone plays a few bars of uh the scene where tony is about to uh dump his face into the cocaine that weird little uh sound that they have going on back there that that's um that goes on throughout that whole movie and it's not actual music it's just kind of like noise that's in tune i guess kind of like what they did in godfather but i think godfather was more of an orchestrated piece well if we're if we're going to go into just a single piece that uh that you know defines the music for the whole entire franchise soundtrack whatever leave it to the philadelphia to point this one out (laughs) rocky Yeah, of course. Of course, you got Eye of the Tiger from from uh, yeah. Survivor, but the the actual Rocky score. I mean, there ain't Manzoni, dude. Oh, that song. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Never heard of it. Manzoni was the shit. He won like uh, twelve Emmys, and it was on Johnny Carson like maybe like ten times or more, maybe. But yeah, man, that's like one of the most recognizable on the first note kind of songs. Mm-hmm. That's the shit. And you get an image with it. I mean, you, yeah. you always picture a Rocky running up the stairs. Of yeah, the, running up the steps. Yeah. 
And I think, I think for a, a film score that uses orchestra, I think that's the most important part. Like, I know you guys talked about it earlier. I wasn't here for it. But when I think Star Wars, I can literally put on a Star Wars soundtrack, close my eyes, and I see the film in the scenes listening to the music. Like, when the music notes hit, I know where it is in the film. And it's not just Emperor's March, if you're a real fan uh, of the movies. Knowing the whole soundtrack, like, whenever Luke Skywalker and, and Darth fight, in the freezing pit uh, mm. in Empire Strikes Back, uh, there's a trivia game, and they asked, we played on teams, me and my uh, co-host, we played on teams, uh, how many sword strikes were there during this scene? And they played just the first five seconds of the song from that scene. And we went through it, and it was like, the answer was seven. And it took both of us about 15 seconds to go through it because we were imagining the music along <laughs> with the scene. It was, it's so attachable. It really is. But that, that, that's the beauty. That's the beauty of fucking uh, John Williams anyway, because you could do the exact same thing with Indiana Jones. You could yeah. do the exact same thing with close encounters of the third kind. You could do the exact same thing with jaws. Like the man had a, had a way of making visuals with music. Yeah. For lack of a better term, he, he made he, visuals. He drove music. the scenes for sure. Yeah. yeah. Or the way they over uh, the way they edited it. You know, I think that was just as important as his piece. But he was able to visualize the whole scene with the music and make it go together, for sure. I was just remembering uh, the Who's Tommy or Pink Floyd's The Wall. Uh, yeah. Those are both two films that I think really worked out. The only the only thing I would argue with Pink Floyd the Wall is the Wall was an album three years before the movie, and they they uh, conceptualized it. It became one of the first concept albums because of the movie. I think another one that really attaches itself well with raw footage is Song Remains the Same. Um, yeah. maybe it's maybe it's overplayed a little bit, but it, uh, the way they showed that set um from you know this is a 1975 concert before some classics or uh before some classics and definitely after some have been overplayed but uh that's just uh a lot of great raw footage the way they cut it together with the music and uh just you know you can't argue with led zeppelin anyways but you know still well, we're talking about that kind of album yeah i'm a kid of the 70s so those are right up my alley well, see that that that's why I'll leave it. I'll leave it to the judges, you know, to give the overall marks to it. But that's why I didn't think to bring up Pink Floyd: The Wall, because I know the album released in 1979, and then the film came out in 1982. Mm -hmm. Essentially, they made the film for the album, as opposed to that's you know, the concept the they made for the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's the same they thing came with Tommy. With concept albums, you know. Uh, uh, also, um, Queensrÿche, uh, their their two albums. Jet City Woman and, and uh, Operation Mindcrime, those were put together kind of like as a tribute to Pink Floyd with the whole concept al album. If you watch all of their videos in a row, it actually puts together a movie with a common theme. I, uh, you, you brought something up, and I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes, but I, I'm going to throw myself out there in the universe as probably one of the most resident experts in Queensryche in the fact that at one point I had an option to write a movie based off the Operation Mindcrime soundtrack. Yeah. When the band split up, that all took a shit. It just, oh. yeah. Whenever Joffrey and, and uh, was it the guitarist or the drummer who had the big uh, disruption? 
Well, I mean, there, there was, there was a lot of hostility in that band going back yeah. many, many years. The, the catalyst. My, my wife is probably like one, you know, one of their greatest fans period, because she, she knows everything about them and, and uh, it, a great band and, and a tragic kind of a split up and they've reunited a couple times and it's just not ever, ever. The new, the new Queensryche is straight up legit. Todd Latore is amazing. Give give it a shot. So, um, you know, maybe down the road, you know, we can, we can talk about that album in some concept album would be a great, a great topic to, to revisit. Yeah. Concept is, is a really wide, wide variety, I guess. No. Yeah, but no, to be fair, sure. you got a, you got about as much chance of getting original lineup Queens right together as you do ever getting. Well, they did know, it. On, I don't know if they did it on this last album. I don't know if they did it on this last album that he's talking about. But I, I don't I, think I, I don't think Jeff was on it, was he? Before that, huh? I don't think Jeff was on the new album, was he? Jeff hasn't been on an album for right three albums at this point. Yeah. yeah. That that's what I mean. You'll never you'll never get Jeff to rejoin. You have about as much chance of get getting Jeff to rejoin uh, Queensrÿche as we do getting Roger Waters back in Pink Floyd permanently, not just for a while. Or well, Don Dokken and Lynch Mob re, uh, Lynch Mob reforming, you know, yeah. to become Dokken. It, it's really sad, you know, knowing that that's this uh, that was part of the uh, whole sound that made made the group go. That uh, you know that focal point is is net not ever going to be there again you know when you, have, uh, when you have litigation involved and now yeah. they on a legal term standpoint, yep. certain members own certain product you know so yep. who has the right to play these songs is now decided by court so getting people back together would would encompass yeah. kind of reevaluate legal standings on yeah break, breaking litigation or whatever you know yeah that's really well, I fun gotta, i gotta as a songwriter i gotta imagine there's some like uh there there's some like personal feelings involved too like when you say a court a court is involved let's say for the sake of argument all five of us were in a band <coughs> and we split up and i was the primary songwriter but you guys won the rights to songs that i wrote like, yeah, I'd take, I, would, I would take some offense to that. You know? That's black and white with, with them. I, I, some of it has to do with the actual guitar riffs, the arrangement on things, the, way, uh, the, the concept of the two concept albums. Like all of that stuff is up to the litigation. Like there's a whole lot of int- intellectual property they're arguing over. It, oh, it's all, it's not as black and white as writing the song or not. No, I get that, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, is I could definitely see some hard feelings being involved with it too, not just totally. legality. Yeah, totally. yeah, yeah, and, and that's the fucked up thing. And there's a really blurred line with all of them because they're all claiming ownership of each thing. Yeah, <laughs> really fucked up. You know, if Michael Jackson can buy the entire Beatles catalog, <laughs> true, right? Hey, guess what? I own all your stuff now. Um, <laughs> look, as a, as a songwriter. <laughs> As a songwriter, <laughs> if I was the Beatles, I would be pissed if Michael Jackson bought all my shit because, you know, if I was a, as a songwriter, I think I would be most, most uh, accepting of the fact that, like, Weird Al bought my shit. It's pretty easy to do whenever Ringo Starr doesn't give a shit. Paul McCartney isn't the real Paul, Paul McCartney and John Lennon's dead. 
<laughs> that was George R. Well, well, Paul McCartney approached Paul McCartney approached uh, Michael Jackson to go in with him to help buy the the, the catalog, and Michael mm -hmm. Jackson went behind Paul McCartney's back and bid. Yeah, out. he did scoop him on it. He definitely did. Yeah. And Pete Best still got screwed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we digress. <laughs> Nice. Well, gang, we've been an hour. You want to go ahead and call it a night or? Sure, we can going? go. Yeah, I'm cool. Okay. Everybody say bye. 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 <laughs> Cheerio. We already talked about the show, so yeah. Have a good week, guys. Okay, I'm going to end it. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye, -bye. <laughs>